Kia ora tato. I think we'll get started. My name's Neil Atkinson. I'm Chief Historian here at Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. <laughs> I'm delighted to welcome everyone here today, um, and particularly to welcome Dame Margaret Sparrow, who's speaking today on, on her book, Rough on Woman, Abortion in 19th Century New Zealand. Um, as I'm sure many of you here will, will know, um, Margaret is the author of Abortion Then and Now, New Zealand Abortion Stories from the 1940s to the 1980s, which was published in 2010. Uh, now these are these are significant works on on what is undoubtedly a, a challenging field of, of of history, challenging not just um, because the subject matter is often uncomfortable or or somewhat somewhat grim, but especially in the case of, of work on the 19th century beyond the reach of of oral oral testimony, um, because uh, of a paucity of sources, um, especially sources other than those produced by coroners, police, and courts. Um, and um, newspapers, which often took a sensationalist and uh, line and, and focused on on the tragic. So, please join me welcoming you. And thank you very much for the invitation to speak uh, to you today um, on on my book, because um, my talk today is based um, on the on the book, um, which records the deaths of uh, 25 women who died as a result of an unplanned pregnancy at a time in our social history when to give birth to an illegitimate child was a source of guilt, shame, family dishonour and social disgrace. There was no financial support for these mothers, um, so their choices were limited. Infanticide or suicide were tragic outcomes. Another group of women who chose abortion were those who were married with enough children to care for and a lack of resources to provide for more. Sometimes they sold their children to so-called baby farmers. Most of what we know comes from coroner's reports and newspaper accounts of deaths or criminal prosecutions. In 1866 and 1867, New Zealand adopted the abortion laws of England. The penalty for abortion, including self-abortion, ranged from three years to life imprisonment. The penalty for supplying the means to carry out an abortion was up to three years imprisonment. Fatalities due to abortion were caused by infection, hemorrhage, air embolism or poisoning. Although abortion was a risky procedure, most women survived and when they did, they were unlikely to talk about it publicly for fear of prosecution. Abortion was not mentioned in their correspondence to family and friends. The information we have is biased towards events with an adverse outcome. But even this gives us some insight into the lives of ordinary women. The reticence of New Zealand writers was echoed in England. Elizabeth Gaskell's novels were all about 19th century domestic life. She wrote about unplanned pregnancies and illegitimacy but none of her female characters had an abortion. Contraception was no answer 
to this problem. The government was concerned about the declining population and birth control was frowned upon by the medical profession. In England, Annie Besant published a book on birth control, The Law of Population, in 1877, and this eventually reached New Zealand. It was advertised, as you can see here, quite prominently in 1894 when she conducted a speaking tour of New Zealand. She advocated a sponge soaked in a solution of alum or quinine or a rubber pessary which was placed over the, over the cervix at the entrance to the womb. She also endorsed Rendell's pessaries, which you can see here, the first commercially produced spermicidal preparation. In her opinion, the safe period was not safe. She was not very enthusiastic about Carter's interruptors or withdrawal, probably the most widely used method at that time. And she associated condoms more with their use outside marriage for the prevention of venereal disease. She thought that syringing with various spermicidal solutions was less effective than the three methods that she promoted, the spermicidal tablets, the rubber pessary, and her favorite, the sponge. Chemists had a very limited range of contraceptive methods. They sold natural sea sponges, and every home had a syringe or enema or douche can. These were widely used for bowel enemas, personal hygiene or after intercourse. Douching or washing out the vagina was a familiar ritual for 19th century women. Plain water was used or substances could be added. Most New Zealand chemists did not stock contraceptive rubber goods and there were no advertisements for condoms for men or diaphragms or caps for women. Faced with the predicament of an unplanned pregnancy, women often started with self-abortion. <coughs> there were many old wives' tales about home remedies, such as parsley tea, the active ingredient of which was apiol, a component of many proprietary medicines. All countries had their own herbal preparations and New Zealand was no exception. A reminder of the use of temahoe or whitewood is to be found in the name of the abortion clinic at Wellington Hospital Day today, the temahoe unit. Concoctions were made from toy toy leaves or flax roots. Common garden plants which were used included the winter rose or hellebore, tansy and Queen Anne's lace. Poisons were hazardous. Poisonous white or yellow phosphorus had a reputation as an abortifacient and the household items most commonly used were match heads and certain rat poisons. Women would scrape the heads off matches and mix the scrapings with a drink the use of white phosphorus in matches was not banned until the Berne Convention of 1906. Here's a case history. 
1898, Miss Emma Howie, aged 19, was visiting her married sister Elizabeth of Pyroa. And at the inquest into her death, Elizabeth denied knowing that her younger sister was pregnant. She remembered that one night, Emma asked her to be sure to leave a candle and some matches. And she thought this was a bit strange as she was going to be sleeping with her. <coughs> Emma was about to take up a position as a servant girl in the home of a Mr. and Mrs. Murray. She went there, but did not stay long as she became seriously unwell. Mrs. Murray called in Dr. Wright. Emma told the doctor that her menstrual periods had stopped and he ordered a simple tonic from the chemist. The following day, having not improved, Emma returned to her sister's place. She became weak from vomiting and diarrhoea and had a severe nosebleed. Her condition deteriorated and she began to lose consciousness. Elizabeth told Dr. Wright that she suspected her sister of taking match heads and her symptoms were consistent with this. For confirmation of the diagnosis, Dr. Wright sent a telegram to his colleague, Dr. Forbes, who came and examined Emma before she died. He agreed with the diagnosis. At the post-mortem, the medical opinion was that there had been a miscarriage probably within the last fortnight of a pregnancy of about three months gestation. The jury at the coroner's inquest found that Emma Jane Howie died from septicemia, that's blood poisoning, accelerated by some irritant poison, probably phosphorus. Other home remedies. Syringes, enemas and douche cans, as I've said, were everyday household items in 19th century and even into the 20th century. The equipment could be adapted and various attachments for carrying out an abortion. Care had to be taken with syringes because if air entered the blood circulation, this was fatal. Physical exercise was commonly tried, skipping with a rope, jumping up and down, jumping off a chair, falling from a height, or riding a horse. Hot baths were often combined with medications. Sitting over steaming hot water was another method. Penetrating instruments were used for self-abortion, such as crochet hooks, knitting needles, or wire coat hangers bent to shape. Deep pelvic massage was another technique. Here's another case history. Mrs. Kate Madigan, aged 36, had been happily married for 19 years to Patrick, and they lived in Auckland. They had three living children, six to nine years old. At the inquest into Kate's death, evidence was given by her friend Mary. Kate had confided in Mary that she was pregnant and didn't wish to have any more children. She told Mary that she knew how to enter her womb with a piece of whalebone from an old corset, and that she had done this before and would do it again. On Wednesday, the 6th of December, 1899, um, Kate visited Mary. It was six years since women had won the right to vote, 
and both women were keen to exercise their franchise. Kate was aching all over and felt that she would be unable to go to the polling booth, but at 5pm the two women took a cab to the polling place at St James Hall. Kate walked home afterwards, but she was feeling increasingly unwell. As her condition did not improve, Dr Muir was called in on Friday. Kate had a fever, was vomiting, was unable to pass water and was becoming weak. She refused to go to hospital, wishing to stay for the sake of her children. The doctor passed a catheter to draw off urine and prescribed a mixture containing tincture of opium for her pain. When he called the next day, her condition had not improved and this time he insisted that she be admitted to hospital. On the way to the hospital, Kate said to Patrick, if I get over this, I will never do it again. Patrick told the hospital doctor that Kate had been pregnant for three months and that she had had several miscarriages during the last six years. Kate died at 7.30am on Sunday morning. The post-mortem examination revealed a large tear in the upper part of the uterus. The coroner's verdict was that Kate Madigan at the district hospital at Auckland did die and the cause of the death was acute blood poisoning through the absorption into the blood of putrefactive matter caused by the rupture of the uterus and that the said rupture was due to an illegitimate act performed by Kate Madigan upon herself for the purpose of the procuration of abortion and not otherwise. Kate had been able to exercise her vote but was unable to exercise control of her fertility. Coroner's posts were established in 1858. Only deaths that were sudden, unexpected, suspicious or that occurred in a jail or a lunatic asylum were referred to the coroner. The coroner's court was convened in a suitable venue. In towns or cities this was usually the magistrate's court but it might have been in a hospital, a hotel or some other a public place. In Kate's case, it was held in the hospital where she died. An official verdict on the cause of death was arrived at by the coroner and initially a jury of 12 men reduced to six men after 1885. So there's only six jurors here. One of the jurors was appointed foreman. Juries were routinely appointed to attend coroner's inquest until 1908. Many men would have had no real understanding of the reproductive lives of women and relied on the evidence provided by doctors. Even the doctors sometimes had difficulty distinguishing a natural miscarriage from an induced abortion. At the inquest, evidence was obtained from relevant witnesses. In Kate's case, the evidence was consistent with what had happened. However, <coughs> witnesses frequently withheld private and confidential information to protect themselves, the woman, the abortionist, and any <coughs> other accomplice. If partners or relatives 
knew what had happened, they might deny any knowledge and there was nothing that the coroner could do about this. After all the witnesses were heard, the coroner would decide if further evidence was required and hearings were sometimes adjourned until, for instance, the results of tests or post-mortem findings were available. The jury would then consider their verdict and present this in writing, signed by all. Sometimes a rider would be added. If the jury felt strongly about a particular matter, coroner's reports were all handwritten and could be many pages long and often quite difficult to transcribe. Although chemists had a limited range of contraceptives, they did a brisk trade in abortifacients. They were not advertised as such, but terms used were to bring on the menses, to restore regularity, to remove obstructions, or just female pills. There was much debate about the effectiveness of purported abortifacients, and this was frequently exploited by defence lawyers. Holloway pills, on the left, um, were, were popular and a common household item. They were advertised to purify the blood, correct all disorders of the liver, stomach, kidney and bowels. They invigorate and restore to health debilitated constitutions and are invaluable in all complaints incidental to females of all ages. Likewise, Beecham's pills on the right were advertised for a long list of complaints. Every sufferer is earnestly invited to try one box of these pills and they will be acknowledged to be worth a guinea a box. Beecham's pills taken as directed will quickly restore females to complete health. They promptly remove any obstruction or irregularity of the system. Doctors' names were often used to convey superiority Dr. Bonjon's uh, pills, for instance, which contained ergot, aloes, and apiol. They were clearly labelled poison. Iron was a common ingredient, and although good for the blood, is not considered an effective abortifacient. APS um, female tablets contained apiol, iron, and pennyroyal. Ergotin uh, compound contained ergot, aloin, and hellebore, as well as iron. In apiol and steel pills, the steel was shorthand for salts of iron. Tal's special pills came in different strengths and contained pennyroyal and iron. And Martin's pills were another brand of apiol and iron. Another case history. Miss Maria Hackett. This is in fact the earliest abortion um, for which I found um, records, although not the coroner's um, report. Miss Maria Hackett, age 20, uh, was employed as a housekeeper to Thomas Yates, a shoemaker of Colombo Street in Christchurch. When she became pregnant to him, she could only think of the shame and disgrace that having a child out of wedlock would bring upon her family and the humiliation that she would suffer from her friends. She asked Yates to get something to get rid of the pregnancy. And in his defense, he said that she threatened to cut her throat if he did not help her. 
He first obtained steel drops from a chemist, then confided in a surgeon he knew, Mr Charles Motley of Littleton. Without seeing the patient, Mr Motley gave Yates a prescription containing rhubarb, calomel, citrate of iron and quinine. Yates visited another chemist for some more pills and some more steel drops. As a result of all this medication, Maria had a miscarriage on the 24th of December, but she also suffered a toxic overdose. She adamantly refused to see any doctor, and when eventually a GP was called in, it was too late. Because of the suspicious circumstances, the case was referred to the coroner. At the inquest, the surgeon denied that he knew anything about the pregnancy, and the coroner issued a warrant for Yates to be charged as I said, we don't have the um, coroner's report, but we do have what was in the um, newspaper. At a coroner's inquest held the other day, the jury, after three quarters of an hour's consideration, returned a verdict that Maria Hackett died on December the 26th, 1868, from the effects of abortion, which abortion was caused by certain noxious drugs willfully and feloniously procured for and administered to the said Maria Hackett by Thomas Yates for the purpose of procuring abortion. And we, the jurors aforesaid, do say the drugs aforesaid were prescribed for the said Maria Hackett by Charles Motley, a medical practitioner. But whether the said Charles Motley knew for what purpose the said drugs were procured, there is not sufficient evidence to determine. The prisoner Yates was then committed to take his trial for manslaughter at the next criminal sittings at, of the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, Yates was charged not with manslaughter, but for the lesser crime of administering drugs with intent to procure miscarriage. The jury found Yates guilty, and he was sentenced to two years imprisonment with hard labour. The surgeon was not charged. When home remedies and chemists' pills failed to bring about abortion, instruments of various sorts were used. In doctors' surgeries, there were metal bougies used for dilating openings, such as the urethra. Forceps could remove the contents of the uterus, and curettes were used to scrape the lining of the uterus. The rubber catheter and the Higginson syringe could be purchased at any chemist, the catheter was very commonly used by non-medical abortionists. Usually a thin wire or stilet was threaded through the lumen to make insertion easier and to bend the catheter in the right direction. The catheter was sometimes left in place for a day or two while strapped to the woman's thigh. The Higginson syringe was used to inject a solution of soap or Jay's fluid or some other substance into the womb. This was the method used by Vera Drake in the film of that name, but it could also be used by the woman herself. Some abortionists inserted what were known as tents on the right. <coughs> sea tangle tents were made of dried seaweed. When inserted into the cervix and left there, the seaweed absorbed body fluid expanded several times its original size and in the process dilated the cervix. 
The tent was left in place for several hours or overnight and the procedure might need to be repeated. Dilation of the cervix sometimes initiated a miscarriage and if it didn't, it was very easy to pass an instrument through the dilated cervix. In modern medicine, laminaria tents may still be used to dilate the cervix. Sponge tents at the bottom on the right were um, acted similarly. They were made of dried mucilage and to each tent a string was attached for ease of removal. In 1889, Mrs. Martha Astridge, aged 28, lived with her husband and their three children at Riddiford Street in Wellington. They had been married for seven years and Martha died five days after a miscarriage when she was about three months pregnant. At the inquest into her death, both her husband and her sister-in-law, Sarah, testified that Martha had visited Mrs. Thorpe, a well-known midwife who was also an abortionist. Martha said that the first procedure was not painful, but the second procedure, about a week later, was excruciatingly painful. Martha visited Mrs. Thorpe a third time, and on this occasion, a sponge tent was inserted, and she was instructed to leave this in place for three days and then remove it. If she had any difficulty removing it, she was not to go to a doctor or anyone else for assistance. As it happened, Martha was able to remove the sponge tent without difficulty and returned in another four days for a fourth visit when another sponge tent was inserted. Her husband buried the sponges in the garden. Mrs. Thorpe was at the inquest, but on the advice of her lawyer, refused to answer any questions on the ground that to do so might incriminate her. In his summing up, the coroner said that there was a possibility that a criminal offence had been committed, but the medical evidence did not prove what means had been used. The story about the attempt to procure an abortion depended entirely upon statements made by Martha to her husband and sister-in-law, and this did not meet the standard required to be accepted as evidence. The police were unable to provide corroborative evidence as to the involvement of Mrs. Thorpe. After deliberating for 25 minutes, the coroner's jury brought in a verdict that the deceased, Martha Astridge, died of septicemia in consequence of having suffered a miscarriage, that there was grave suspicion that such miscarriage was brought about by unnatural means, but how or why there was not sufficient evidence to show. Mrs. Thorpe was not charged. The police, however, kept her under surveillance and very soon after she appeared again in the Wellington Magistrates Court charged with unlawfully using an instrument on another woman. The police, however, foresaw the same difficulties in establishing a convincing case and said they would not proceed. The case was dismissed and no doubt Mrs. Thorpe would have benefited from the publicity. Abortion was a crime and most doctors did not wish to risk prosecution 
but some became abortionists, acting clandestinely. They had an advantage over non-medical abortionists because of their training and clinical expertise. They practiced aseptic techniques, reducing the likelihood of infection. Also, the surgical equipment found in a doctor's surgery had many other legitimate uses and was not useful as incriminating evidence. There were others, but these three doctors achieved notoriety as their cases received much publicity in the press of the day. Dr. Russell practiced in Christchurch, and Dr. Orpin and Dr. Wilkins both practiced in Auckland. Dr. Russell was first charged in 1887 with procuring abortions on two women who gave evidence at his trial. He pleaded guilty to one and was found guilty of the other. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment and his name was struck off the medical register. From prison, he wrote poetry, letters and petitions about the injustice of being found guilty for helping women in medical need. Upon his release, he continued to practice as an unregistered doctor and continued to do abortions. His name was subsequently linked to three deaths, but he escaped another prison sentence. In 1897, 10 years after the cases that sent him to prison, a 22-year-old married woman with four children died of septicemia. This time he evaded prosecution through lack of evidence. <clears throat> In the following year, 1898, a 29-year-old single woman died of septic peritonitis, and Dr. Russell was charged, but the grand jury returned a finding of no bill, and he was discharged without a trial. Fourteen years later, in 1912, a 33-year-old married woman <coughs> with five children died of septicemia, but for lack of evidence, the police did not prosecute. Later that same year, Dr. Russell was before the Supreme Court to defend the charge of the attempted abortion of an 18-year-old single woman who continued her pregnancy and at the time of the trial had given birth. Dr. Russell was found not guilty by a weak case and a sympathetic jury. At this stage, he was in his 80th year, frail, and somewhat deaf, but still unrepentant about providing what he considered was a necessary medical service. Dr. Orpin was charged with the murder or manslaughter of Miss Susan McCallum. She's there in the inset. Susan was 24 and she died on Christmas Day in 1895 due to septicemia. To evade possible prosecution, Dr. Orpin fled the country under a false name just before she died and had to be extradited back from San Francisco for the trial in the Auckland Supreme Court. It was a lengthy and complex case, but after a retirement of only two hours, the jury found Dr. Orpin not guilty. The announcement was received with cheers and applause from the women in the gallery. The case was a me media sensation and this um, uh, 
depiction of Miss McCallum is rare um, to invade the privacy in such a way. Dr. Orpin continued to provide abortions and in 1905, 10 years after the Miss McCallum case, he was before the courts again. This time, the charges were as a result of a directive from the local branch of the British Medical Association that any member becoming aware of suspected illegal activities had a duty to disclose this information to the police. Two doctors came forward with two different cases, both implicating Dr. Orpin. There was much debate about this breach of patient confidentiality, but both women testified at the subsequent trial of Dr. Orpin in the Supreme Court. After five hours deliberation, the jury could not agree and a new trial was ordered to commence the following day. This time, the jury returned a verdict of guilty and Dr. Orpin was sentenced to three years imprisonment. He was in poor health and nine months into his sentence, he was admitted to Auckland Hospital where he died a month later at the age of 74. Dr. Wilkins was a respected surgeon, but he was allegedly responsible for the deaths of two women from septicemia. The first was a 32-year-old single woman from the Thames who received 30 pounds from the putative father to pay for the abortion. After a lengthy coroner's inquest and a police investigation, no charges were laid. The second death, three years later, was that of a 25-year-old devout Roman Catholic woman who had just been married for five weeks and wished to avoid the shame of giving birth seven months after her marriage. In a dying declaration, she named Dr. Wilkins as the abortionist and he was charged with her murder. Three juries could not agree on a verdict, but at his fourth trial, the jury found him not guilty. We've talked a bit about the legal um, process. The coroner's inquest was primarily concerned with the cause of death. If the evidence indicated that a crime should be investigated, this became the responsibility of the police. The police would then lay charges or make an arrest and depositions would be heard before a magistrate in a magistrate's court, also known as the police court or the lower court. For serious offences, an abortion was always considered um, serious. The case would be referred to the next sitting of the Supreme Court, the equivalent of today's High Court. At the first hearing in the Supreme Court, the judge would summarise the depositions of the magistrate's court and a grand jury would decide whether there were sufficient grounds to conduct a jury trial. The grand jury's proceedings were secret and the decision was either a true bill uh, meaning that there was a case to answer, or no bill, and the accused was discharged. New Zealand abolished this extra level, the grand jury system, in 1961. In the Supreme Court trial, the decision of jurors had to be unanimous, so a hung jury resulting in a retrial was always a possibility. Because it was a clandestine matter, most abortionists were charged only if something untoward occurred. 
The abortionist could easily deny any involvement. If the woman visited an abortionist on her own, there could be no one to corroborate the evidence. Witnessing a woman entering the abortionist's premises was insufficient to prove that anything had taken place. Abortionists came from all walks of life. They did not seek out clients, but at considerable risk to themselves, provided an on-request service. Those who exploited vulnerable women, demanded sexual favours, used dangerous methods and charged high fees were generally disapproved of by the public and the judiciary. However, there was considerable public sympathy for those whose main motivation was to help women in distress. This is reflected in the fact that juries in such cases were unlikely to convict despite condemnation by the church, the state, the judiciary and the medical profession. Crown prosecutors frequently had difficulty presenting corroborative evidence, especially from accomplices. Women were usually given immunity from prosecution in return for information about an alleged abortionist, and the unfairness of this strategy was not lost on male jurors. However, the woman's evidence was often ruled inadmissible because she was an accomplice to the crime. Even dying declarations were often ruled inadmissible or failed to stand up to challenges from the defence. The putative father could easily deny any involvement and tests were not available to prove paternity. Sometimes the man suspected, rightly or wrongly, that he was being blackmailed. Although self-abortion was, and still is a crime, it has never been a priority for police or for prosecutors. Supreme Court sittings were regularly held in the main centres and judges visited provincial centres to hear cases accumulated over several months. In the time period covered in my book, the courts were under the administration of two Chief Justices. Sir George Arney, who served as Chief Justice for 17 years from 1857 to 1875, and Sir James Prendergast, who served as Chief Justice for 24 years from 1875 to 1899. When New Zealand introduced the abortion law in 1866 and 1867, Arnie heard the first case in 1868 against George Henry Clark, 37, a farmer in the Bay of Islands, a father of eight who was found not guilty of supplying noxious drugs, namely two bottles of aloes and two boxes of Holloway's pills to a young woman he had seduced. Another early case in 1873 involved a medical practitioner, Dr John Parsons, accused of administering noxious drugs, in his case ergot, croton oil and jalap, to an 18-year-old patient with whom he had sexual relations on the pretext that this would help in the treatment of her scalp condition. He was found guilty and sentenced by Chief Justice Arnie to four years imprisonment. Sir James Prendergast was described as forthright or blunt and a disciplinarian. 
He presided over a number of abortion cases, and in most of them, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. The exception was the case of Mr. and Mrs. Brown, who were accused of procuring an abortion that resulted in the death of Alice Marshall. Mr. Brown received the most severe sentence that has ever been handed down um, for abortion. Miss Alice Marshall, aged 27, came from a respectable family and lived at home in Wellington with her two sisters. For about a year, she had been keeping company with Thomas Ellison, a solicitor and well-known footballer. On the 22nd of July, 1895, Alice took the train from Wellington to Palmerston North to visit a friend, Mrs. Engelbertson. She said she just had a cold and wanted a rest, and Mrs. Engelbertson was concerned enough to call in Dr. McIntyre the following day. During his examination, he elicited the information that an abortion had been performed on Alice about a week previously in Wellington, but at that stage she declined to give him any further information. Over the next four days, her condition worsened and she died in Mrs. Engelbertson's home. On the day that she died, Alice gave Dr. McIntyre the name and address of the person who procured the abortion and this information was placed in the hands of the police. Medical opinion based on the post-mortem findings was that death was caused by septic peritonitis and subsequent general septicemia or blood poisoning. Alice was from four to five months pregnant at the time of the miscarriage. There were no signs of physical interference. The coroner and jury of six men accepted the opinion of the doctors, but the following rider was added to the verdict. In the opinion of the jury, there are suspicious circumstances connected with this death, which ought to be fully inquired into by the police. Charges were laid in the magistrate's court against three persons, John Henry Brown, who preferred to be known as Dr. Brown, although he was not a qualified medical practitioner, his wife, Mrs. Annie Brown, and the putative father of the child, Thomas Ellison. Newspapers of the day covered the inquest, and as a result of early publicity, two other young women came forward claiming to have visited the Browns for an abortion, and further charges were laid. Although there was legal dispute about admitting these two further cases, they were to prove more advantageous to the Crown than the death of Alice. The Chief Justice allowed one of them concerning a Miss Jessie Elliot to be heard first. Jessie testified that she had had an abortion on the 10th of August 1895. She had written to Dr Wright of Wellington as a result of seeing his prominent newspaper advertisement. But when Jessie went to this address, she was met by Mrs Brown, who told her that Dr Wright did not do the operations or even approve of them. Dr Brown would be performing the operation. When Jessie returned as instructed the following day, she paid Mrs Brown £25 in notes 
At the subsequent trial, a picture emerged of Mr. and Mrs. Brown using their Wellington home for the purpose of carrying out abortions. They lived there with their young daughter, Ethel, and shared it with Dr. Wright, a registered medical practitioner who had an alcohol problem, and fled to Sydney so that he could not be charged as an accomplice. There was a surgery upstairs with various instruments and medicines. There was a back bedroom where women could stay to convalesce. Clearly, the Browns were sheltering under Dr. Wright's name and qualifications. The Supreme Court trial of Mrs. Annie Brown was the first to take place in December 1895. She was found guilty and sentenced to two years jail, and her sentence was upheld by the Appeal Court and also the Privy Council in London, one of the first cases to go to London. The separate trial of John Henry Brown was held in the Wellington Supreme Court the week following his wife's and lasted over five days. The Chief Justice, Sir James Prendergast, presided. The jury retired at 9.10pm and returned at 11.15pm, at which hour there was a large crowd present in the court. The jury returned a verdict of guilty on the charge relating to Jesse Elliott. The other charges were withdrawn. Brown was sentenced the following day to 18 years imprisonment with hard labour, the most severe sentence in the history of abortion cases in New Zealand. His Honour, in passing sentence, was very frank and said there was no doubt that for a lengthy period, Brown had been carrying on an abominable business under the name of a drunken sot. He praised the young women who had come forward for their courage in exercising their civic duty. In conclusion, the system was indeed rough on women. The stigma attached to sex outside marriage and the birth of illegitimate children was cruel. Contraception was either out of bounds or unreliable. Unsafe abortion practices were allowed to flourish. The coronial system was mainly a passive recorder of events. The law was harsh, but largely unenforceable. The medical profession was unhelpful as regards both contraception and abortion. Women sometimes paid with their lives or their health and their families suffered. No one suggested that abortion should be treated as a health matter and not a crime. A legacy that remains to this day. Thank you.